Hi, welcome to Bookie. Today we'll unlock ways of seeing. Imagine the following situation which we may run into in our lives. You are attending a high-end event and you feel eager to make connections and impress certain important individuals. During the event, someone mentions a popular art exhibition that was recently held. When asked your opinion on it, however, you fail to say anything compelling, and feel extremely embarrassed by your ignorance. Instead, someone else speaks confidently about art and gets the spotlight. Now playing a low-key role, you sit on the sidelines as if you were invisible and mull over the situation in disappointment. You too want to be able to analyze an artwork. You wish you could effortlessly talk about your opinions with everyone's eyes fixed upon you, basking in people's admiration. You feel increasingly disheartened however, as you believe that it would require years of study in order to increase your level of artistic criticism. In fact, it's not so difficult to increase your level of artistic criticism. Although it may be hard for an ordinary person to understand a painting from its technical aspect, we can still appreciate an artwork from its historical background, the artist's purpose, and the hidden intentions behind different ways of interpretation. As we unlock ways of seeing in this bookie, you'll be able to get a preliminary understanding of the hidden languages of visual arts, including oil painting, photography, and advertisements within 30 minutes. The author of Ways of Seeing was John Berger, an influential English art critic, novelist, and painter in the contemporary world. He had extraordinary achievements in various fields of art. He held many solo exhibitions, and also wrote multiple monographs on art and novels. In 1972, the BBC broadcast his documentary series with the same name as the book we are introducing. Moreover, in the same year, his novel G won the Booker Prize and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize. In the field of art criticism, ways of seeing used to be an alternative to the mainstream practice. Traditional art critics usually focus on the technical aspects of artworks, such as lines, colors, and composition. This book however directs our attention to something else, for instance the artwork's historical background, the artist's purpose, and the hidden intentions behind different ways of interpretation. It tells us the secrets behind images and gives us a whole new perspective to appreciate artworks. Topics in this book include traditional ways of seeing the oil painting, the influence brought by photography to the ways of seeing, the depiction of women from male perspectives in classical oil paintings, and ways of seeing the art of advertising in the modern world. The arguments used in this book have influenced Western ways of seeing visual arts for several generations. In 2011, The Guardian listed ways of seeing among the 100 best non-fiction books of all time. Next, let's follow Berger's guide to learn the secret language of visual arts from the following three aspects. Part 1, Ways of Seeing in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Part 2, Ways of Seeing in the Age of the Traditional Oil Painting. Part 3, Ways of Seeing in the Modern Age of Advertising Art. Before camera was invented, oil painting was the mainstream visual language used in Europe for four centuries. However, as popular as the language of oil painting used to be in Europe, it has now become mysterious and puzzling. When we enter a museum and try to appreciate an artwork, we may find it difficult to understand, even when captions are provided beside it. So, is this strange sense of distance intrinsic to the artwork, or is it generated by humans? 
Berger argues that this distance is human-made. According to him, two powers have led to the mystification of artworks. Politics and commerce. To mystify artworks is to give a new explanation to certain facts. The new explanation makes the art piece, which was initially quite evident and straightforward, deviate from its original point and generates new meanings. For instance, the ruling class may distort the original meaning of a painting, in order to prevent viewers from paying attention to real-world social conflicts in which it represents. By doing so, they can solidify their political power. Another example can be speculators who hype a particular artwork in order to make it worth much more than it does to gain profits from it. There is a case presented in the book about the mystification of an oil painting by political interests. Franz Hals, a Dutch master of the portrait, was renowned around the world for his vivid depiction of the character's transient expressions and movements. His image was even printed on the ten Dutch guilders banknote. However, he spent most of his life in poverty and debt. In the winter of 1664, the then over 80-year-old Franz Hals accepted a commission from the old men's almshouse in the Dutch city of Haarlem, to paint two group portraits for its regents and regentesses. This created a conflicting situation as the destitute old painter had to paint the administrators from whom he got a scarce money. So, what did he do in his portraits to represent their barely existent kindness and nobleness? What Hals thought of and how he felt at the time was undoubtedly later revealed in the final works. Purposefully, the two masterpieces are both quite dark and gloomy, without the iconic vibrant colors of the works in his prime. The characters in both paintings look either grave or dumb. However, when an art historian later interprets the two portraits in his article, they will often intentionally avoid pointing out Hal's evident criticism of these figures. On the contrary, they continuously emphasize artistic techniques. They analyze that the painting's dark tone serves deliberately to form a visual contrast, and that the characters' facial expressions are in-depth descriptions of their personalities. With interference from political ideology, the artwork now becomes mystified. As a result, people won't pay attention to the fact that charity and subsidies from the government are not enough to meet poor people's basic needs. Not to mention how they would consider poignant questions, such as whether or not the current social system is fair. Mystification of artworks is not only attributed to politics. With the invention of the camera, the reproduction of images can be realized almost instantly, which has brought forth the mystification of artworks for commercial purposes. As camera can copy images, many paintings are reproduced in this way, damaging the uniqueness of the original painting. But at the same time, the original work becomes more significant for what the art piece uniquely is. We often hear of artworks that were sold in auctions at astonishing prices, and believe that the prices truthfully reflect the artistic value of such pieces. However, Berger argues differently. He points out that the price of an original work is actually defined by the evaluation standard of the object's rarity. Nowadays, many people worship artworks of the past, just because of the irreproducibility and uniqueness of the original works. They do not bring attention to its artistic value, but their commercial value. For such art collectors, since the original work cannot be reproduced, its uniqueness must always be highlighted, in order to keep increasing its market value and to profit from it. As a result, the mystification of artworks intensifies. 
Take Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting Virgin of the Rocks in the National Gallery for example. In the museum's catalogue, the entry on that painting consists of 14 full pages, making it one of the longest entries in the catalogue. And what are there in those pages? They do not record and analyse the meaning of the image, but rather who commissioned the painting, its likely date, who owned it, legal disputes, and so on. It encapsulates years of research by art experts whose aim was only to prove two points. The first point was that the painting owned by the National Gallery is in fact a genuine Leonardo. And the second point was that an almost identical painting in the Louvre is a replica. Either way, they serve to define the commercial value of the painting and have almost nothing to do with its meaning. You may believe that too many reproductions destroy the original work's sense of mystery and thus lowers its commercial value. But that's not often the case. In the following example, even if an artwork has been constantly reproduced, the original still becomes even more mysterious as it's hyped by market value. The National Gallery often reproduces some of its collections and sells them as souvenirs. Among them, the most reproduced is Leonardo's cartoon of the Virgin and Child with St. Anne and St. John the Baptist. At first, only some scholars were interested in this unfinished drawing in charcoal and black and white chalk. Until one day, an American offered to buy it for two and a half million pounds. From then, it became world famous. Now, the drawing is protected behind bulletproof perspex, and has become mystified. From what we've just covered, we see how the invention of the camera has helped speculators mystify works of art. Next, let's look at what other impacts the camera has brought. First of all, it has brought about a new way of seeing, and thus untraditional views. Before the invention of the camera, European art was based on the convention of perspective. A painting following the convention of perspective centers everything on the spectator, as if everything in the visible world is arranged for the viewer. The camera however can see the world from different angles in different ways. Such a way of seeing eliminates the central position of the spectator. It allows spectators to see things that are different from their own experience. Moreover, after the invention of the camera, the meaning of a painting is no longer permanent and determined, but changes with its context. The same painting can be used to serve different purposes through camera reproductions. The book describes an experiment that properly explains this point. The experiment was realized with a famous oil painting Venus and Mars created by Sandro Botticelli, a master of the Florentine school. The painting represents a panorama of the life of Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, and Mars, the god of war. In the experiment, Venus's face is singled out in a reproduction, isolated from its original context, and becomes a brand new portrait. This new portrait created by isolated reproduction starts to have its new meaning beyond that of the original work. This is how technological innovation impacts our ways of seeing classical works of art. As mentioned previously, speculators gain massive profits from art dealing. However, such speculating makes art more mysterious and more incomprehensible for the general public, widening the gap between the two. An institution conducted two social studies concerning this subject. One study looks at the level of education of art museum visitors. The samples come from Greece, Poland, France, and the Netherlands. Let's take the French results as an example. Among French people with no educational qualification, 
only 0.15% have ever visited an art museum. Among those with only primary education, the percentage increases a little to 0.45%. The rate is much higher among the French with only secondary education, reaching 10%. So far, it seems like people's level of education has direct correlation with their interest in art. The higher one's educational level is, the more interested he or she is in art. If that's the case, then, is there a much higher percentage of people among those with higher education? Well, the answer is no. Results show that among the French with further and higher education, only 12.5% of them have visited art museums. The study shows that the majority of the public simply don't care much about works of art. So, what impressions do the general public have about art museums? Another survey asked people what they associate art museums with. Most people answered that art museums most likely remind them of churches. It shows that people feel that art museums or the mysterious objects displayed within them, to be quite distant from their secular lives. This concludes the first part. Let's do a brief summary. First, we talked about why artworks are mystified. One reason is politics, and the other is commerce. Then we talked about how the invention of camera brought along techniques of reproduction and changed the determined nature of a painting. It also has helped speculators mystify the art. However, the invention of camera has also brought along new ways of seeing images. Finally, we talked about how the over-mystification of artworks has widened the gap between the general public and art. Next, let's move on to part two, ways of seeing in the age of the traditional oil painting. Since ancient times, people have known how to make oil paint by mixing oil with pigments. They also knew how to make tempera and fresco paintings. However, not until canvases had replaced wooden panels did oil painting become an art form. In the early 1400, Northern Europe began to use oil painting to depict the characteristics of the then new era. This is generally regarded as the beginning of the age of the oil painting. Traditional oil paintings demonstrated the ruling class attitudes toward property and exchange. To be more specific, as oil paintings can render the tangibility, the texture, and the luster of objects, anything depicted by oil painting can convey a highly realistic perspective to the viewers. As such, the ruling privileged class used oil paintings to show off and reproduce their wealth. As French anthropologist Lévi Strauss points out, the immense fortunes which were being amassed in Florence and elsewhere catalyzed the art of oil painting during the Renaissance. That's because the ruling elites and wealthy Italian merchants looked upon painters as agents, which enabled them to exhibit their tremendous wealth in oil paintings. Take this example. In 1533, German court painter Hans Holbein the Younger painted the ambassadors. This painting stands at the beginning of a tradition. The two ambassadors in this painting are in lavish outfits, and the furnishings around them are also exquisite, each object is a work of art. The painting shows precisely how rich the two ambassadors were. With a perspective of four centuries later, Berger interprets the underlying significance of objects in this painting. The scientific instruments for navigation represent the slave trade, the traffic of wealth, and the accumulation of capital for the launch of the Industrial Revolution. The globe depicts the voyages around the world and the ruling of conquered lands. On the globe, 
one can even see the name of the estate in France that belonged to one ambassador. There is also a book of arithmetic, a hymn book and a lute. They are tools for the two ambassadors to consolidate their colonial rules. The tradition of oil painting as a way to show off and express the possession of objects lasted until the 19th century, ending only with the rise of Impressionism and Cubism. Furthermore, the art of photography brought by the camera replaced the oil painting's function of recording reality. But before that, the traditional way of seeing was deeply rooted in the various common themes of oil painting. For example, in a sumptuous still-life painting by Jan David Stahim, a Dutch painter famed for his still lives, ingredients like lobsters pile on the canvas. This has nothing to do with the artist's aesthetic preference. It only demonstrates the commissioner's wealth and luxurious lifestyle. Take the painting of animals by English painter George Stubbs as another example. The emphasis is on the animal's pedigree, which is a representation of its owner's social status. The highest category in oil painting was historical or mythological pictures. This theme didn't embody any particularly deep meanings. Often, the collectors only wanted to see themselves dressed up as some classic noble characters, or their wives and daughters as goddesses brought alive in paintings. As in The Three Graces Decorating Hymen by English painter Joshua Reynolds, who was famous for his historical portraits, the daughters of a knight are portrayed as three goddesses. Among all the oil painting categories that reflect the lifestyle of the upper class, the genre painting is an exception. Genre painting is one that actually depicts the so-called low life at the time. Its real purpose however was to display the upper-class diligence and nobility through the depiction of the lower-class laziness and vulgarity. That explains why though the genre painting focused on the lower class, the characters depicted in those paintings appear to be quite vulgar and ugly. So, before the rise of Impressionism, even genre painting couldn't escape from an association with wealth. English painter Thomas Gainsborough once said that he was sick of doing portraits, and wished to go to the countryside in order to paint beautiful landscapes. Though even when you look at his painting Mr. and Mrs. Andrews that was set in a park, the park wasn't for everyone. It was a private piece of land which was owned by the couple depicted in this painting. So, after all, the painting was the landlord's declaration of wealth. One category occupies a special position in European oil painting, the female nude. Most owners of female nudes were men. Men as spectators enjoyed their independent perspective, while women being looked at were reduced to objects to be viewed from a male perspective. Female images in this category always catered to men's aesthetic preferences, and appeared to be very solicitous of male attention. Consider this example. According to the story told in Genesis, the first time Adam and Eve found themselves naked, they both felt ashamed. But a long history, the depictions of the two figures changed in paintings with this theme. In paintings about Genesis during the Renaissance, Adam and Eve both try to cover their naked bodies and look ashamed. But in paintings of this same story in the 19th and 20th centuries, Eve as a woman still appears shy, but Adam, the man, doesn't appear ashamed at all. He no longer covers his naked body, but displays it proudly. This example perfectly shows how society is tolerant of men, but harsh on women. Let's take another example to see how female nudes catered to male perspectives. Charles II once commissioned a secret painting from Peter Lely, a Dutch portrait painter. 
It seemed to be a typical mythological painting of Venus and Cupid, but in fact, it was a nude portrait of one of Charles II's mistresses. Cupid is in fact only a decoration in the painting. What the painting represents in the end is a woman passively looking at the painting's owner, that is Charles II, who would be staring at her naked body. In European paintings of female nudes, the characters in the picture were never the real principal protagonists. The real principal protagonists were the men who owned the paintings. Though they never appeared in the picture. They, like Adam who became the agent of God, had the power to control women. In the oil painting collector's mind, no matter what goddess you are, Venus or Athena, as long as you are in their painting, you will have to pose as they like it. As for an artistic appreciation, it's more like a unique way to whitewash men's possessiveness. That's the end of our second part. In this section, we followed the development of oil painting to find out how the ruling class expressed their attitudes toward property and exchange through traditional oil paintings. We examined different categories of oil painting and revealed the secret behind traditional oil paintings, the representation of the collector's richness and possession objects. As to the particular category of female nudes, it also showed men's possessiveness through a sexual prison. Now let's turn to the third part and take a look at the ways of seeing in the modern age of advertising art. Today, advertisements have occupied almost every aspect of our lives. Walking down a street, you'll probably run into billboards by the roadside, or advertising LED screens on the exterior walls of buildings. Vehicles with advertisements on them drive around, and there is often someone who blocks your way, trying to hand you a flyer. When you open an application on your phone, there are ads in it as well. So, what exactly is advertising? As one kind of art, advertising is commercial art that induces people's consumption by creating glamour. The biggest difference between advertising and other art forms is that advertising belongs to mass communication. Furthermore, we can only understand advertising art when we see it in its social context. Advertising art is a tool for businesses to gain more profits and occupy more market share. As David Ogilvy known as the father of advertising once pointed out, the primary function of advertising is to sell, otherwise it's useless. To reach such selling goals, advertisers continuously strive. Take an advertisement for perfume as an example. A gorgeous and sexy star makes her entrance into an extravagant setting. Her perfume makes her all the more glamorous, and she captures the heart of a gentleman immediately as she passes by. Taken only as the artistic expression of the ad, whether it's the star or the luxurious setting, everything is enticing and dreamy. It promises you that once you use that perfume, you'll be as charming as that star with the glamour you need to attract gentlemen. An advertisement always wraps a real selling point in deceptive artistic expressions in order to touch your heart. It will never remind you of what you don't need. It simply seduces you into constant buying, lured by the beautiful dreams intentionally created. It tries to make you believe that you'll get a whole new self-image after buying the product it advertises. In a word, advertising is a dream-building tool of capitalism. Its primary purpose is to get you to buy. Berger reveals a phenomenon that many advertisements borrow from traditional oil paintings. Some imitate images from classical works of art. Some even make exact copies of characters and settings in famous paintings. Take a look at this example. 
Here is an image ad for a gramophone and some records, captioned we could all use a little romance. In this picture, a naked woman sits on the grass, looking outside the picture. Two well-dressed men sit beside her. Placed by the other side of the woman is a gramophone with some records, deliberately magnified as if playing romantic music. One can also see a half-naked woman standing by the river in the distance. So, what does the designer of this ad want to invoke with the picture? We find its prototype in a well-known oil painting called The Luncheon on the Grass by French artist Edouard Manet, the pioneer of Impressionism. That painting not only gave rise to the development of modern painting, but also left a profound influence on other artists of the time. Picasso even made an extensive series of artworks inspired by this original work of Manet. The designer of that gramophone and record ad copied the painting for two purposes. On the one hand, as we mentioned previously, oil painting equals wealth in terms of its commercial value. So, adding elements of oil painting to the ad made the products more luxurious. On the other hand, the art of oil painting represents cultural authority, so it also increased the product's cultural value. Many merchants have discovered this function of art and have used it to make their products more attractive. For example, merchants of European furniture would place some copies of famous sculptures beside the furniture, so that people may associate the products with art and evaluate them more favorably. Consider another case. French restaurants or high fashion stores often hang elegantly framed oil paintings on their walls, lit up with soft light. This helps elevate costumer experience to a higher cultural level. However, is it true that an advertisement can inherit the entire value of an oil painting? Berger answers no. This is because the functions of the oil painting are completely different to those of the advertisement. As we've also covered, traditional oil paintings were about showing off wealth and possession. They confirmed the collector's fortune and status that they already owned. The artistic value of the oil painting and the social status of its collector were real and united. But, what about the advertisement? It borrows the image of a sexy star to sell perfumes. It borrows the image of a successful person to sell real estate. However, it can neither make you into a superstar nor someone successful. The advertisement only reminds you of what you are lacking. It describes what it'll be like if you own the product, but it can't make the dream into a reality. Besides, what the merchants behind advertisements can provide are only products. The cultural value of a product is deliberately created by the merchant. It's simply illusionary. Having talked about all these, we can see that Berger is very critical of the relationship between advertisements and the world. He states that advertisement in the capitalist society explains everything in its own terms. It's not constrained by reality. It even ignores moral criticism. Let's take an example from the book to better understand this statement. A magazine once published an ad, putting side-by-side -side images of two societies in different phases of development. In one picture, there are people in ragged clothes from a poor third-world country huddling together and looking spiritless. In comparison, the other picture exhibits the superior living status of the developed society. A lady in her evening dress is standing elegantly beside a window in a well-decorated room, looking outside. This advertisement aroused great moral shock as it demonstrated the advertiser's derisive attitude toward the lower class. 
The Advertiser's Weekly pointed out in one of its issues in 1972 that some publicity firms were aware of the commercial danger of such regrettable juxtapositions in news magazines. Even with such an awareness, did the advertisers make any change? Well, they decided to use less brash, more somber images, in a bid to appease the public dissatisfaction toward the inappropriate comparison. In the face of moral criticism from the society, the advertisers only made insincere concessions. At the time, that was the worldview of advertising. It only valued business, disregarding any moral criticism. Moreover, in a capitalist society, advertising also allows politics to take place more easily. The consumer culture fueled by commercials directs people's entire focus onto living a better life. As a result, people neither care about their political preferences, nor pay much attention to social conflicts. Advertisements have helped in the diversion of people's attention from conflicts and whitewashing. As Berger points out in his book, according to the worldview of advertising in the capitalist society, the world is always peaceful, and consumption is the only glamorous thing to do. Berger seems deeply worried about this. He is concerned that if everyone is interested only in personal trivia instead of social reality, people risk being more apathetic. Their morality may get weaker, and our society may become increasingly cruel. Okay, now we've covered all the major points of the book. Let's do a brief review together. First of all, we talked about the ways of seeing in the age of mechanical reproduction. We got to know that the mysteriousness of artworks is not natural, but human-made. Rulers used the mystification of artworks to cover up real-world conflicts and consolidate their rules. Similarly, through the mystification of artworks, speculators of later generations pushed up their market price to gain profits. The birth of the camera brought a new technique of image reproduction. It damaged the uniqueness of painting and helped the speculators mystifying artworks. At the same time, the camera also brought different ways of reading images. Artworks were over-mystified, and the gap between ordinary people and art got widened. Then we talked about the ways of seeing in the age of the traditional oil painting. Tracing back the history of the oil painting, we understood the purpose of oil painting's visual expressions. The privileged class wanted to exhibit their material possessions with the painter's mastery, so that they could show off how rich they were. Many genres of oil painting possess the same function. Though having different ways of expression, they otherwise served the privileged class purpose of showing off. We then examined the theme of female nudes. We saw that female characters in the picture were solicitous of men's sexualized gazes. And that indeed hid a fact, the male collector of the painting was the real protagonist. The female character was only the object of the collector's gaze. And at last, we talked about the ways of seeing in the modern age of advertising art. Advertising art is utilitarian. It serves business. By providing a beautiful picture of a dream life, advertisements seduce you into continuously buying. Though advertisements borrow from the language of oil painting to express their commercial intents, what they can inherit from the oil painting is only the artistic expression, but not value. That's because the oil painting and its value are both real, but the advertisement can only provide product information, not any artistic value. Berger reminds us in the book that the worldview of advertising in the capitalist society is rooted in sales and profits, without regard to social reality. 
that's something we should all be alert to.